we couldn't have been more touched uh, last week by the welcome. Um, really, that welcome, we've been feeling that welcome since the first week we stepped foot in this, uh, in this building. Um, and it, I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, it makes a, a pastor's job a whole lot easier um, uh, when, when uh, he feels the love of, of the people in the building for each other, uh, for your pastor. So uh, thank you all for the incredibly warm welcome we received last week. Um, I won't make a habit of talking about attendance, but uh, in conjunction with that, I was so thrilled to be speaking a message so plainly about the gospel when uh, we hit the, uh, the 100 mark last week. Uh, 25 kids and 75 out here for the for the service. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm not about the numbers. I'm not a numbers guy. I, I'd much rather get spiritual depth and spiritual width, right? I mean, we we want to go deep in the waters, not uh, not just splash around in a puddle, no matter how wide that puddle is, uh, right? So we're not looking for, um, not intentional about just packing numbers. I could I could speak some easy messages and we can get some people in here, tickle some ears and, and make you feel pretty good. And in fact, last week, uh, I was conscious of the fact I had to say it in, in the service that, uh, man, this is my welcome message and I'm like just banging the drum and beating them down. I, I should probably back off a little bit, but uh, Tim won't let me. Um, and so we, uh, we, we preach the word as it's presented in scripture. Uh, and that's what we, that's what we do. So uh, thank you all for that welcome. Um, we're looking forward to, as I said a couple weeks back, uh, we are looking forward because as the Spirit moves, as uh, God uh, grows this church, we're going to see that curtain push back. And we're going to have to figure out what to do with the fellowship area. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having that problem um, because I want to reach this community for the kingdom. Uh, I, I'm excited about that. I know that you, all of you are as well. Um, can't thank you enough for that. Um, some weeks, we are back in our Galatians study. Some weeks, as I look at the next bit of text, as I look at the next bit of scripture, I look at that and I say, oh, I don't know, what, what angle do I take on this? What, what bit of this do I really try to preach up and, and bring? And, and sometimes it's a struggle to know just what to say. Um, and, uh, and other times you have the opposite problem where you look at a text, you say, no matter how much I truncate this passage, maybe just two, three verses, there's so much there that I don't know what not to say. Uh, and so that's, that's the difficulty this week, the latter, not the former, uh, is to, to know what not to say uh, in this text. Uh, we are in Galatians chapter 2, if you wanted to turn there. We'll get there in a moment, just for the sake of those who have uh, not been with us each week. Uh, and I'll probably do this every week, just to, just to tie it back to the introduction we gave uh, in week number one. But uh, Galatians, as we've said, is uh, probably the earliest writing of the Apostle Paul, the earliest Pauline epistle, just a fancy letter for letter. Or fancy word for letter. And uh, it's probably the earliest one he wrote. So we know because of that, that it's probably the earliest canonical Christian writings that we have. Canonical meaning it's part of scripture. We, uh, we recognize it as authoritative. Alright, so that's, that's pretty fascinating stuff. That this is the earliest portion of the New Testament that God inspired to be penned in response to a problem that cropped up in the Galatian churches. Uh, dating the, uh, the writing of this letter can be somewhat difficult. Um, I, I take the earlier view that it's written before what's called the Jerusalem Council. If you want to read about that, I'm going to throw you a bunch of uh, references in Acts today. Uh, but if you want to read about the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, they had a very specific problem, one that we're going to get to in the, ta- in the text today. Uh, but uh, it's, it's curious that if this had been written after that council, why Paul would not have referred to that council uh, in authority when he was trying to demonstrate what they, how they should handle this particular instance uh, that we're going we're to be talking about. And really, the, the whole of Galatians is all about that same, uh, that same issue. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. He writes it in defense of two things. He writes it, first of all, in defense of his own apostleship, which is under attack. 
But he came in and planted these churches, and then it's just a few years later, we're seeing people attack the very authority with which he planted those churches in the first place. And so I was good enough to plant the church, but now a few years, a few years hence, you're looking back and saying, well, these guys got some better stuff. They got fancier uh, gizmos. They got, they got better, better uh, toys in their bag. So uh, we're going to follow these guys rather than what Paul initially taught. And so his apostleship is under attack. Uh, more importantly than that, I'm sure Paul would say to you, I don't care about me really at all, except that you know that the authority that I was given was by Christ himself. He met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and that made the difference for everything. But more importantly than defending himself is defending the pure gospel that he originally preached. No add-ons. No Jesus plus law. No Jesus plus legalism. No Jesus plus this thing that you offer, which we've been reminding you is referred to. All the good works that we offer to God in exchange for entrance into his kingdom, he says, those are but filthy rags. I don't know what to do with that. I can't have a big enough pile of filthy rags to say, hey, I'd like to trade this pile in for entrance into your kingdom. Maybe just one or two more. He says it's not good enough. So the pure gospel is Jesus plus nothing. And if you're thinking, man, these, these themes keep repeating, and they will, um, I, I want to repeat themes as emphatically and as often as Scripture repeats them because that must be what God wanted. If he repeats things often enough in Scripture, we know that in Scripture that was a mechanism for, uh, for urging the, the emphasis of a point being made. So if I say something once, I, might, I mean it, but if I say it twice, you know I really mean it. It's, it's, it's placing strong emphasis, and Paul's all over the place, uh, repeating himself. And repetition and restatement means strong emphasis. This was an urgent message, a passionate plea, a frustrated call against the perversion of the gospel that he had taught them. So Paul, Paul is, is in angst. He is, he is fired up. You can see in the text we're going to be in today that it's just kind of this scrawl of words. He just kind of blows up and writes it all over the page, run-on sentences and parenthetical statements and, and all these things. That you're like, what's Paul? You have to read it three or four times to even distinguish what he's saying. And so Paul is fired up. At the end of the book, he says, look with, with what large letters I write this in my own hand. Uh, it was typical of, uh, of a teacher like Paul to have what's called an amanuensis. This may turn into a vocab, uh, vocab uh, uh, service today, but he had an amanuensis was simply a scribe, somebody that wrote as you dictated. But at the least the latter portions of the book of Galatians, Paul wrote himself. So it's an urgent message, a passionate plea, evidenced by the text that we're in today. It's said to be difficult to translate into English because we really don't have English equivalents for all that Paul's trying to say. It's obviously charged with emotion. Uh, I want to invite you to, to climb into Paul's situation. You've, you've built this thing at no small cost to yourself. Uh, you've been getting chased out of town. From town to town, you're getting chased out, left for dead, beaten, stoned, hit with rods, over and over, imprisoned. And you have this pure thing you're trying to build up. And you do. You, you plant churches all over Galatia, southern and northern. And just a few years after that, they're already, they're already breaking it down. They're already, they're already messing it up. So I want you to climb into Paul's situation with him, with me. And you'll sense and understand the frustration with which he writes. I was speaking with somebody after uh, the, the first introductory uh, message from our Galatians series. And uh, she offered a compliment that it was, it was very nice to get some background 
some people get bored with that, but I like to set the stage. I like to, to, to paint the picture for you uh, so you can get the, big, the context in which we're, we're dealing with these things. We often are guilty of asking 21st century questions of a first century text. And we have to first understand what that first century text meant to first century eyes and ears before we can hope to understand the application for 21st century goofy eyes and ears. We're a goofy bunch. You know that, right? I mean, I, I get a good view of it, so I can see. Don't take yourselves too seriously. I don't. I don't take myself seriously either. That wasn't about you. That was about me, but... We're going to climb into Paul's situation, uh, into those frustrated yet passionate words of Paul to the churches of Galatia. So again, Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be verses 1 to 10. And before we dive into the new text, let's go ahead and uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord and Father, we ask you, we ask your spirit to be here in power this morning. Lord, we ask you to break down the doors, to crash through the windows as a song said to those that uh, might be here, Lord, this morning and not know you as Lord and King and Savior of their lives. Lord, might this message, if they don't decide by the end of this message that they want to make you King of their lives, Lord, might they at least have a proverbial rock in their shoe that they have to deal with. That would gnaw at them every day of the week, Lord, until they decide to do something with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would come in power upon those people, Lord, that they would see their need for you as Savior. Lord, do what I cannot do uh, with this text. Lord, make it come alive. Make it real to the people that are here today. And those maybe watching online, uh, Lord, might your word not return void. You said that it wouldn't, so we're trusting you for that today. Be powerful in this building, Lord, and uh, across anywhere that people are watching this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is the text this morning. Paul starts off, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So he says then, that implies there was something else that's connected to that passage. And he was just, uh, uh, just in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 18, saying, Then after, I'll just read it to you, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem, to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's just recounting his post-conversion activities, his post-conversion experiences. Remember, he didn't feel the need to run off right right away to Jerusalem. And Jesus shows himself to him in that crumpled heap, that blind and crumpled mess that he became on the road to Damascus. He didn't feel the need. After you've been with Jesus, I don't feel the need to go get, get endorsements from anybody else. Amen? If, if Jesus has placed a call upon your life, you don't need anybody else's appreciation of it or endorsement of it or pats on the back, and you probably won't get them. Don't look for that. Look for well done, good and faithful servant. Look for that. Look for a back that's tired from, from years of ministry and kingdom work. A heart that's full of other people, not yourself. So many of you are examples of that to me in this building. And I appreciate you for that. So after 14 years, a little bit of time, if you're impatient like I sometimes am, you can't wait for God to do the next move. You look at how many years have passed between some of these events in Paul's life, you're like, oh, I guess that's 14 weeks is not that much. If he could wait 14 years for his next Jerusalem visit. 
But he went up. It says he went up to Jerusalem. You probably think that means he went north. He was south of wherever Jerusalem was and he went north. Actually, that's a twofold meaning, neither one of which means north. It might have been. Uh, but actually, Jerusalem was situated on a hill. So people from any direction would, would refer to going to Jerusalem as going up to Jerusalem. You go up the hill. So you could be south of it, you could be north of it. You know, if, if we say we're going up north or down south, we, we have a uh, topographical cardinal direction in mind. Paul would not have. He went up to Jerusalem, but also had theological context. So a Jerusalem seen as the epicenter of religious life and activity. And they believed, the Jewish people believed this would be the epicenter for all times. Uh, of course, Jesus is building something new uh, out of this. The first chapter of which was Judaism, but the next chapter, which would make the old chapter obsolete, is I'm starting something new. I'm building a worldwide family. There's one family, there's one kingdom, one body, one church, one faith. And he's building that. And so when we look at this, they, they might have had a theological context for saying up to Jerusalem, that, that, that pinnacle of religious activity. But Paul wouldn't recognize it as such. He went with Barnabas and Titus. We know Barnabas from the book of Acts. Uh, accompanied him on his first two missionary journeys. So missionary journey number one and two. And, the, and in the first uh, place that we see them interacting in, as missionary partners, uh, we see Barnabas actually taking the lead because Paul's a fairly new convert. Um, and uh, so Barnabas is kind of lead. And you can, you can tell that from the text because of whose name it places, uh, Luke in his writing, whose name he places first. So when he first starts talking about this missionary team, he, he lists Barnabas first. It's not long after that that Paul rises to the preeminent point. He's supposed to be uh, the top dog. And he takes that position and, and, uh, and never looks back. And so you'll see a transition where, where Luke starts referring to uh, Paul and Barnabas. And that's a, even in our heads, that's how we remember that. It rolls off our lips a lot easier, Paul and Barnabas, than Barnabas and Paul, because we're used to hearing it that way. He also took Titus, which you don't hear about in the book of Acts, but he took Titus along with him. He was a, a Greek believer, so uncircumcised. And uh, I only tell you that because that's the main point of what they're, what's at contention. What's, what they're having contention with uh, is this idea of circum circumcision. So not a big deal to us today, whether you are or you're not. The, the, not really a big deal. In Judaism was a huge deal. A, a very big deal. It was a sign of the, the, the belonging to this group uh, that a male was circumcised. Uh, and so it came up, what, what does the Gentile believer, the, the non-Jewish believer, what do they have to do to be a part of this thing? Do they have to be circumcised or not? And so Titus is going to feature very strongly in Paul's argument here. He says, I went up because of a revelation, verse 2. Uh, this revelation, again, if you want to go back to Acts, and if you're taking notes, I jot down Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Acts 11, 27 through 30. And in that, Paul receives a revelation from the prophet Agabus about a famine in Jerusalem. In fact, this visit that Paul is on, has, some people would say this is his famine visit because he's probably going with Barnabas and with Titus. He's going uh, with a, a purse, with some funds to help them out uh, for their, the, the famine that they're experiencing. So that's why he's up there probably. Acts chapter 11, if you want to read the background there. And I said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul goes to, out of respect for them, and out of a desire for unity in the church, he goes to Jerusalem and sets before these guys that seem influential. And I want to, I want to suggest to you that he is not being sarcastically uh, insulting. It may seem that way. Paul will get around to calling these guys pillars of the church. And I believe he means that. Uh, but uh, he says they seem influential. Because I wanted to check with them to see what the gospel that I proclaim among, among Gentiles is the same. 
He goes on, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. None of us wants to put our hands to a plow, at the end of which we know doesn't matter, in vain. Who wants to live a life at the end of which you say, oh, it didn't really matter? I didn't really matter. I often tell people, just for the sake of humility and just for the sake of helping other people get, get some uh, humility, I say, five minutes after I die, nobody's going to remember that I ever lived. And that's not a sad thought. Because I'm just a, I'm just a guy from Braidwood. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it, we all should feel that way. But Jesus was the same way. But, but Jesus, 2,000 years later, a third of the world claiming allegiance to him. But we don't want to do things... Is the mic getting caught in the beard? We worried about that. We ran, we ran beard tests uh, before the service. That's not true, but that's a good segue for a drink of water, right? Yeah. Easy. Jesus had a beard. And I want to be like Jesus, so. Where was I before you guys interrupted me? So he says privately before those who seemed influential in the gospel that he had proclaimed because he wanted to make sure he had not run in vain. Two ways we can look at this, had not run in vain. Uh, he set up these churches, and, and the, the whole idea of which was to create a worldwide family. Now you want to talk about, you see in the news uh, all over the place, this, this idea of, of racism and, and hatred and bigotry. Uh, these are some of the walls that Jesus came to destroy. And you have to understand, you cannot divorce the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that it brings. You cannot divorce that from a walking away, a full walk, turning your back on the ideas of hatred of any person because of anything about them, race or ethnic origin, anything like that. But Paul's setting this thing up, uh, and he's trying to bring the Gentiles into this great promise that started with the Jewish people. And he's seeing that now this is being splintered back into these factions. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I, this, I follow the circumcision, I follow the uncircumcision. And, and Paul, if he, just, if he just rests on his laurels, if he just let it go, uh, then it might have splintered into those factions again. Who thinks Paul is going to do that? That's not Paul. Paul's a tough guy. I don't know if he could fight, but he could fight with words pretty good. He didn't want to run in vain. He also wanted to make sure that he was preaching the same gospel that the apostles were preaching. Now, he had no reason to believe that he wasn't. He, he received this directly from Jesus. So he had every reason in the world to believe that he was preaching the, the pure gospel. But again, respect for authority, respect for unity, he went to them. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And this is, this is crucial. This is a test case for what's going to happen. And again, this is why we're not sure whether or not this book is written before or after the Jerusalem Council, but I'm inclined to believe it's before. Because if Paul had that council wherein they stated, a person did not have to become Gentile, Jew, Christian in that order. A Gentile could walk into this thing and be a Christian, be a Christ follower immediately with nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. So Titus is a test. He's a Greek uncircumcised man. He's not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. I've said this before. I will say this every time the scriptures bring this up. But uh, secretly, subtly, craftily, these are not Christian words. If you are subtle, it's not, it's not because you are practicing a Christian virtue. It's more likely the opposite. 
people that are subtle and crafty and, and you could, in modern parlance, you might say passive-aggressive. I try to manipulate and manage people by saying things that I do say more often by the things that I kind of don't say, but I'm implying. A lot of, lot of vague booking going on uh, with a lot of those posts. You see them, you know, you know them. Somebody that posts some self-righteous quip on Facebook and they're really, it's, it's targeted at somebody. Don't be that person. If you have aught with your brother or sister in Christ, go to them. Because what you desire more than anything else is to, to patch that up and fix it. Not to go vent your frustration to somebody else that'll listen. Shame on for doing that. But these, uh, these false brothers, fake family, pretending, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from the Torah, freedom from the law, freedom from circumcision, freedom from the, the ball and chain that is dragging around the legalistic weight of the Old Testament covenant. Jesus brought something better in. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, a, a better thing is replacing the old. Why would you keep going back to that? I've got Jesus plus nothing, grace plus nothing. Why do I want grace plus a little bit of sweat and labor? I want grace plus nothing. Despite our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Misery loves company. Misery loves company. So if they are dragging around that ball and chain of legalism, they want you to be doing the same thing. They want you to be carrying that baggage with you from, from town to town, from place to place, instead of leaving it at the altar where it belongs and walking away from it. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The, the preservation of the gospel cost Paul a, a great deal. Uh, But I suggest to you that it should cost us a great deal too. We should be willing to defend it with all that we are. That's a hill that I'm willing to die on. If salvation equals gospel, good news in Jesus plus nothing, and I come and pervert that, uh, such that it gets you off course just enough to miss the boat, what kind of person am I? Paul did not yield in submission. He Earlier in the book he says, uh, was I pleasing God or pleasing man? And Paul was not very good at people pleasing if that was his effort. He made a whole lot of people mad. A good preacher is supposed to do that. Occasionally you should leave here uncomfortable. Because I want to let you know most of the week I'm uncomfortable. And I'm just sharing a little bit of it with you on Sunday. All week long this book beats me up. And I think about, how do I, how do I properly and rightly divide this word of truth and serve it up for the people here in this room that I love, that I'm leading now? How, how do I do that rightly? I, I need to do that. The weight of that responsibility is crushing. Because on the one hand, there's the thing that I want to say. It's easy to say. It's, it's maybe popular to say. And on the other hand, the thing that uh, you're going to get people staring at their laps if you say this, they're just going to look down and, and not look back up at you. But again, I, I, uh, here I stand, I can do no other, as Martin Luther said. That's a hill I'm willing to die on, and so was Paul. We did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel, there is one truth. And from those who seem to be influential, there he goes again, those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Again, Paul is not being sarcastically uh, insulting to these guys. Uh, He reveres them, but he wants to make clear the idea that he does not need their endorsement, especially as is going to become more clear next week when we talk about Peter kind of getting messed up in some some hypocrisy that Paul has to call him on. Why does Paul need to go get the endorsement of a hypocrite when he he got it straight from Jesus? He doesn't need to. The answer is clear. So he wants to be respectful. He wants to be uh, respectful of the authority that they carry and the weight that they carry. But God shows no partiality. If you're looking to be special uh, with God, you already are. There's, there's not some thing that you can do, some legalistic thing you can express or go take part in that's going to make God love you that much more. He's already there to the nth degree. We called it uh, a few weeks back. I borrowed the phrase from, from John Piper, but Christian hedonism, finding our deepest satisfaction in God. He is most glorified in us when we find our deepest satisfaction in Him. Not in things, not in feelings, not in cars or anything else. The world has to offer, but we find it in Him, and that's when we're going to be most satisfied. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential add nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. This word trusted comes from the Greek root, root the same, uh, which means putting our faith or trust in Jesus. It works back the same way. He entrusts, he puts faith and belief in Paul to carry this message to the Gentile believers, the same as Peter the Rock was carrying it to the Jewish believers. No difference. They're both entrusted. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's his Aramaic name for Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here's another buzzword. Uh, If you're into taking notes, uh, the word fellowship. We do not have an adequate English translation for the word fellowship. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it's a word that implies both a practical uh, living life together, doing life together, togetherness, in the sense that, and in a moment I'm going to tell you why we've cheapened or how we've cheapened it. Because often you associate the word fellowship with the five minutes before or after service and you shook hands. That's not possible. You don't, have, you don't live life together in this building. You live life out there. When I invite you to my house and you mess up my dishes and ruffle the, the, the blanket on the back of the couch, the pillows, and you leave and I've got, I've got 20, 30 minutes of work for Brindy to do. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding you. But, but she probably will. She's a dutiful wife. Um, that's not why I love you, but I do. But... Living life together means we invite you to make a mess of our life, and you invite me to do the same. That's what fellowship means. And when we say fellowship, we talk about the five minutes before after service, we really we cheapen the meaning of it. Now, furthermore, it has a, both a practical aspect. I let you make a mess of my dishes, but I also have a spiritual connection to you. In that one world family that Jesus came to bring, I have that connection to you. And so it's a spiritual thing. Why, why are we not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Because it's impossible to have that with them. It is impossible to share koinonia fellowship with somebody who isn't a son or daughter of the king. And that doesn't mean we're, we're pursuing them with reckless abandon to try to bring them into the family. 
But until we do, we can't have the kind of fellowship that these guys had. We can't have the fellowship that we have with believers in Christ, fellow believers. So they offered the right hand of fellowship, endorsing Paul and what Paul's message was, saying, in effect, uh, keep doing what you're doing, Paul. You go to where you go, and we'll go to where we go, and the kingdom will swell. The kingdom will grow. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And this seems like it almost doesn't belong in this, uh, uh, in this paragraph, but um, we'll cover it because uh, it's part of that. But they asked us to remember the poor. This is something that has always been tied to the church, is generous uh, giving. Uh, and it's not a surprise because it was important to the Jewish faith as well, their almsgiving. Remember, Jesus had to address some things in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, hey, look, you're, you're doing it wrong. If you're, if you're giving, whenever you, hey guys, look, look. Looking now? Okay, I want to put my, off, my money in the offering while you're looking. So they, they got a little bit off kilter, and that's what they were, they were doing it to be seen by other people. Um, but they were still doing it. They were still doing it, and so it was important uh, to bring that out. Uh, it was important to the Jewish faith, it was important to the Christian way of living too. Those who didn't know anything about the early church knew that they were generous. I want to go ahead and try to uh, apply this uh, in conclusion. I'm sorry about this mic going in and out. We, we have some more things to figure out probably with the, uh, with the audio. But maybe this mic's just getting scared me when I start yelling. Or it's getting caught in the beard. Did I already use that? Oh. I already used that joke. I'll have to get a better writer. Amen. <laughs> All right. Somebody else write these for me. All right, so th- three things I want to uh, take away from Paul's words and, and this bit of text uh, before we leave here today. And I want to thank William Barclay for these because I took them uh, unabashedly straight from his commentary. Uh, so William Barclay, one of my favorite commentators, he offered these three things that Paul uh, was in this text that we could take away. Uh, first of all, Paul had a deep respect for authority and an obsession with unity. And the two went hand in hand. Uh, after all, this idea of one family doesn't do real well if all the leaders are divided so that you could say, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Pastor John, I follow Pastor Jeff, and I thank God that none of you are like that. N- none of you are saying, hey, I wish you'd be more like Pastor John, and none of, you, none of you are saying, man, you do that better than Pastor John. I appreciate that about you, um, that we have respect for the leadership before and after I want to suggest to you that I will not entertain it very long if you have thoughts that are negative. And hopefully, John, if you're watching, if they come to you, I know he'll do the same, but Paul had a deep respect for authority and more important for unity because the two went hand in hand. Christ was building his kingdom, building his church, and he wanted it to be one people, one group. That was what Paul was all about. Secondly, Paul refuses to be bullied into submission. Paul refuses to be bullied into submission. In the, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no room for sheeple. You know what sheeple are, right? You know, sheep are kind of wandering, dumb, ignorant animals. They just kind of do what they do until they get all the hair cut, cut off and then they keep doing what they're doing, eat more grass, grow more hair, rinse and repeat, Right? So sheep are not known for being real, real smart, um, but also kind of cowardly. Uh, there is no room in the church of Jesus Christ for sheeple. Paul, again, as I said, uh, he was not very good at pleasing people. Paul would not fit the category of sheeple. 
Uh, one might have thought that his lack of tenure in the church might have been reason itself for him to fall in line with those more mature apostles, those who had been apostles from the beginning. But Paul valued principle over popularity. And you have to, the people in this room, you, you have to get this. You have to value principle over popularity. A couple weeks ago we said that, that you can't please all the people all the time. You can't even please all the people some of the time. You can please some of the people some of the time, so make sure the people you're pleasing are the right people because those, that group of people will mirror the, the, the pleasure that, that Christ takes in what you're doing. That will reflect in the people that, that you need to please. Principle over popularity. So secondly, Paul refuses to be bullied in submission. And third, he was a man on a mission. Paul is a man on a mission. He knew the source of his mission. It came from the risen Christ himself. And so he knew the validity, he knew the legitimacy of that mission was not to be questioned. And he purposed to follow through on that mission. And he didn't want to do it in vain. He wanted to make sure that the things that he did were left in place because they were the right things, they were the true things. He was purposeful about it. How about you? Because this is the application time where I go from teaching to asking you to really grind this home in your own heart. I can't do that for you. I'm asking the Spirit to do that for me. But you know that you can resist the Spirit to your own detriment. So if right now there's some things in your head, you're like, well, I don't know if I agree with that guy, but man, I'm really thinking about that rock in the shoe thing, and I, I, I don't want to leave here not, not being certain. Well, that ain't me. That's the Spirit grinding away at a crusty heart. And trust me, you want him to be able to grind away that exterior and get to the soft tissue inside. So what's your orientation to authority? What is your orientation to authority? This might seem like a self-serving uh, point of the sermon, where I direct your, your orientation to respect and courage and really just love your pastor. No, seriously. That's not in my notes, but it's, I'll take it. But we recognize, we respect, and, and can we even appreciate that we have spiritual authority in our lives? And one of the things that I'm keen to do, although I am, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to the, this vision of thinner, better, bigger. We, we narrow our focus, we get thinner so we can get better at the things that we do. So that eventually when we start adding things, we're excellent at those things too. So one of those things that I want to do sooner than later is to establish our board of elders. Because I don't really like flying solo. And in a way, I am. Um, the church is not designed for one man to have unilateral authority. I need a group of men that I answer to. That stand toe-to-toe, not yes men. Men that will look me in the eye and say, I think you're wrong about this. And then I'll tell them why they're wrong. I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding. I'm thinking about Roe and Jeremy. Now, I've, I've had those people in my life and I'm thankful for them. Rick Dobzik's one of them. I call him, I say, hey, hey, am I doing this right? Well, have you thought about this? Dang it. He's done that to me a number of times, and I appreciate that about him. He's not a yes man. But we recognize, we respect, and we learn to appreciate authority, spiritual authority, without, however, a caving to it when it veers off track. Uh, Again, that that body of leadership that holds me in check, that holds me accountable, because I'm not perfect. If Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners, I'd like to say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Because who's Paul? I got got him beat. 
We recognize, respect, appreciate without caving to leadership when it veers off course. And without, here, listen to me on this, without unduly elevating the person in charge. Anne shared a, uh, a picture on Facebook recently, uh, and, it, and it stated very simply and very powerfully, you don't come here to worship a pastor. You come here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who you come to worship. I'm just trying not to get in the way. And when I do, somebody needs, needs to push me out of the way. God is no respecter of persons, and you shouldn't be either. Uh, Paul, at one point, I forget where the reference is, but he says, it is a small thing to me what you think of me. Don't you love that statement? I, I sometimes use it, and again, just like last week, I thought you should say it in a British, in a British accent, because it seems like it's more, it's, everything sounds smarter in a British accent, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and I'm tempted to try, but I won't, because this is being recorded. But he says, it's a small thing what you think of me. It doesn't matter. God's no respecter of persons. He can, he, can, he can bring up rocks to do what we do. There was a song last week, the rocks cry out, so will I. The creation shouts his praise. And then we, the, the chief of his creation, fail to do so. That's a different message. That's not in my notes either. So we're just going to go ahead and move on. So how does that orientation to authority lend itself or not to the unity of the body? And again, I want to remind you that uh, if you're forming alliances with this teacher or that, you are dividing the body of Christ. And there's not a lot in Scripture that, 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 that God takes more seriously than a divided person. Titus, if you're taking notes, Titus chapter 3. Go to Titus chapter 3, verse 10. And you tell me how the church handles divisive people. One warning, two warning, get out. And I promise you, that is how we will deal with it here at Ignite. And I have nobody in mind. I don't think any one of you are divisive. And if you are, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> I don't want to know. Other than, otherwise, we'll go one step, two step, get out. But this is an important thing. So we don't have somebody saying, well, I wish he was more like Pastor John. Or I, I miss the way we used to do this. Well, God has moved in this church in a particular way, for a particular season and time. My, my time might be 10, 20, 30 years. It might be five years. And God might be, bring somebody else to take it to the next level. And I should be willing to step down as fast as I was willing to, to stand up. You, you'd probably be saying, well, you weren't very fast to stand up. It took me some time. But moving on. The second question I want to ask is, how strong is your backbone? Do you have one? Are you so passive that you just don't, you let, you let everything come and go, you just say, you know, teach their own, and you can, you can dance all over the, the, the cross of Christ, I don't care. I mean, it's just a nominal faith that I have anyway, and it's, it doesn't really matter to me. At the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want. You've heard the adage, stand for something or fall for anything. I don't like that adage because it's not just stand for something, it's stand for truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If I messed that up, I couldn't be a worse friend to you than, I, than that. Isn't the truth of the gospel that Paul was looking to defend? So how, how uh, strong is your backbone against cultural pressure to cave? We are constantly being pressured to cave. Just, a little, just an inch. Church, just give me an inch. Today, all I'm asking for is, look over the last 50 years. How much have we given up? 
you're not going to see it in the last two, three weeks of, uh, of media. You're going to see over the, last, the course of the last 50 years what we've given up as a, as a church body. Cultural pressure, vocational pressure. Maybe your job doesn't like you being outspoken. You should be talked to about that. I take it as a badge of honor that I've been talked to about sharing my faith at work. Maybe it's academic pressure. You want to be seen as an academic elite. You want to be, you want to be smart. So you think, well, I can't really mix uh, science with religion. They don't really mix. Maybe it's a peer pressure. Yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes I, I, I preach these sermons. And I try to preach my guts out. And then... And then my 10 or 11-year-old preaches a better sermon with the way that they live their life. Help me, Jesus. We cave so easily. My son last year in the fifth grade hallway read Custer took a stand, never told me about it. I didn't know until the end of the school year that he did this. But each fifth grader got a chance to say what they hoped to become or hoped to do with their lives. My fifth grader said this, I hope to have the opportunity to become a theologist and preach to others about God. And that hung in the fifth grade hallways a silent testimony of the faith of a 10-year-old. Well, now 11, right? How old are you? I know this better. Daddy needed that joke just now. I needed that. Thanks, buddy. But are we allowing the pressures of this world to, to, to silence us? We can't afford to be sheep, but we can't afford to be cowards. Most of the apostles met their demise preaching these things. I want to say that if you don't determine now when it's easy, when, when the fight's not that hard now, it's just like people making fun of you. Big deal. People making fun of you. Who cares? I've been made fun of all my life for different reasons. I'm not about to cave to that. But how about when somebody puts a spear to your chest or a, a gun to your head? If you don't determine now that this matters to you, life and death matter to you, you will never make the decision when it's hard. Right now it's hypothetical, largely. But one day we may be given, we called to give an account for what we believe. Like the young lady at the Columbine shooting. Do you believe? It's going to cost your life. Do you believe? Thirdly, I want to ask this question. Are you on mission like Paul was? Are you on mission for God like Paul? Do you know your mission? Do you even know what that is? Your, you could say your purpose in life. We get so wrapped around the axis about purpose. There's so many books, successful, like award-winning books, your purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church, some great books. But why are we so attached to the idea? Because we don't want to live our lives at the end of our lives, look back and say, was that in vain? Was that empty? Was that, was that just a vacuous nothingness? Was that just a waste of time? Because while I'm okay with people forgetting that I live five minutes after I die, I don't want my family to forget I want to leave a legacy of believers in the wake of my passing that just like a domino effect continues to fall over.
What is your purpose in life? We've said before, sometimes it's as simple as finding the, the talents and gifts that God's given you and finding where they meet a need, a kingdom need in the world. But let me simplify this. Because if you haven't found your, your specific calling, it's okay. We all have some collective callings that we're all called to. So let me share those with you. Very simple. Just a handful of words. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Make disciples. Love God, love your neighbor. Make disciples. Seven words. That is your mission. The great commandment. We said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. And then the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all my commands. Love God, love your neighbor, make disciples. These two things are the purpose statement of every believer. The rest is just fine-tuning. So become obedient to those things. Let your life ebb and flow on those things. Let the, the, the heartbeat of your, of your heart, might it be the pulse of, of kingdom growth and making disciples. That's your purpose. Finding your particular niche is, is next to that, a second to that. That is your purpose statement. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and I promise you, you won't be standing back there for 20 minutes like I did last week. Well, appreciate it. What are you trying to say, Ed? Somebody get this... Somebody, uh... Somebody get this crybaby a tissue. This stuff just matters a great deal to me. I hope that it matters a great deal to you. As your pastor, I want to stand worthy of your respect, but I want you to know that the glory belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. I want to lead you by example to stand where everyone else is inclined to sit. To speak, as they say, even when your voice shakes. To stand for truth against the bullies of culture and against the bullies of atheism and against the bullies of scientism and against the bullies of naturalism. Against the bullies of the anti-miraculous and against the bullies of the anti-God philosophies. As your pastor, I want to encourage you to become a part of the greatest mission you could ever be called to. The great co-mission that Jesus himself called his disciples and by extension us to. Might we be purpose-driven people a mission-driven people, a Jesus-centered people, a God-glorifying people, seeking His truth and only His truth. There is no life on earth that compares to the one completely dedicated to that cause. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the reminders, the tough reminders sometimes of what You've called us to. And what you've called us, more specifically in this text, what you've called us not to do, to divide, to segregate, to build up walls, to feel elite, take on extra religious baggage. You've asked us, actually you commanded us to, to drop off at the altar and leave it there. Lord, be with us as we move forward as a church. And might these things always be front and center in our focus. We love you. We give you all the praise and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.